Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Andrea Jewell, co-founder of Fix and Fog Nut Butters. And although Andrea has always had a passion for food, she's actually a lawyer by background. Originally from the UK, she started her career as a criminal barrister before moving to New Zealand, where she's worked as a lawyer for ACC and the New Zealand Qualifications Authority. Since 2014, together with her husband, Roman, she entered the entrepreneurial world, wanting to create nut butters that are healthy and delicious. And I was lucky enough to receive a jar as a gift, which was how I came across Andrea's story. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about her career journey today. Kia ora, Andrea, and thanks very much for joining. Kia ora, lovely to be here. Great. I'll start off with a question, which is one that I ask all the interviewees to start with. I'd love you to think back to when you were a child or a teenager and you were thinking about, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to be or do when I grow up? Mm-hmm. What were some of your career mm. aspirations? Uh, I'm slightly embarrassed to say, to be honest, I always wanted to be a lawyer. There's a little newspaper clipping of when I was about eight and our school had um, a building competition out of cardboard boxes. It was one of those kind of activity days. And all the other kids built really cool rockets and spaceships and towers and things. And I built a courthouse. Um, <laughs> and looking back on this newspaper clipping, which my mum sent me recently, I was like, I had my like head in my hand, just what was I doing? But honestly, I've always had a real passion and kind of interest in justice and fairness and Mm. I know my parents used to get really quite frustrated with it when my siblings would get something that they needed and I didn't necessarily need it but I'd say that's not fair I didn't get one or I was always looking for kind of fairness and I guess equality in that sense but as I've got older I have actually realized that often fairness depends on your need and not Mm. literally equal distribution of everything to everybody so I feel like I've matured a little bit in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I would say that being a lawyer really was my um, passion when I was growing up. Yeah, how interesting, even from eight years old. I love that story <laughs> of the courthouse, I can imagine it. <laughs> and so I've heard you talk about this of the equality, the justice, the fairness piece. What was it when you started to study law that mm. continued to have that pull? What was it that you really enjoyed and loved about it? I think, obviously, when you're studying law, you don't really go before the court unless you're just there to observe. So I didn't have any first-hand experience of kind of court um, proceedings. But what I did really like is that somebody objective sits at the top, if you like, and weighs up all the evidence, listens to everybody really carefully and then forms a view. And hopefully it's the right one. And if it's not, then there's recourse to take it further and appeal. But what I also really enjoyed learning about is the fact that there's always two sides to a story. And that sounds a bit contradictory, but as a lawyer, you don't 
necessarily get to choose your cases. And so you might get given a case that on first glance, you think the, the evidence against it is overwhelming and everything kind of stacks up against it. And then you start to read your own or the witness statements pertaining to that particular case and the evidence and, and you start forming a different view. And it's I just love that idea that there is two sides and mm. often both parties with a valid view it's ultimately an exercise in persuasion and ultimately hopefully there'd be more evidence on one side than the other to persuade a court in favour of one party and not the other. Mm, and I think it's really interesting. I can imagine that two sides to every story is something that's a, a really useful yeah. learning to carry through your career. It is. It really is. And I have to remember that in daily life as well and obviously in the work context. Sometimes it makes me almost preempt the other sides or the other person's response. And so internally, I can sometimes feel a bit, not sympathetic, but, you know, in a bargaining position, you have to remember that they've got their side as well. You know, if we're looking for materials, raw ingredients, services, you know, our staff. Yeah, it's really important to remember that everybody's coming from a different place. But mm. what they don't really teach you so much in law is the, the emotional and personal side of a response. Mm. And that's something I'm learning and hopefully getting better at is seeing the whole person and not just seeing the actions, you know, that, that were the consequence of a whole raft of history to that person. So I'm really interested in that side of things and just understanding that everybody comes with their own background and family and friends and experiences and things and that's really important and that's actually what makes us such a a rich um species if you like (laughs) Mm, mm, absolutely and maybe as you said probably doesn't get taught a law which is probably more the rational side I guess exactly yeah Yeah, And, and generally the actions rather than and of course, the thought behind the particular action, but it's like, why did that stuff happen? And mm. um, where were they coming from? And, and that's the stuff that really interests me as well. Mm. And tell me about the first few years of your, of your career. What were some of the highlights, but I guess also some of the challenges of that? So when I um, was training to be a barrister, like looking back, I just think, oh my God, that was so, such a cool and unique experience. I was living in London and doing my bar exams and that was just a really high pressure environment of kind of the first time that you stand up as an advocate and speak in front of a large audience of people Mm. this wasn't in a court it was a it's a mock court scenario Mm -hmm. it's not a real court but the people I met have been and are you know lifelong friends and two of the girls that I went to bar school with came out to New Zealand and were my bridesmaids mm. at our wedding. And it was a really great experience, really intellectual, but also, as I've said, you had that kind of advocacy side to it, which was quite theatrical, if you like. Mm. Getting, I guess the absolute kind of highlight for me was getting pupillage, which is when you are like an apprentice barrister and you go and you work in uh, barristers' chambers. So for the first six months, you shadow a senior barrister. And then for the second six months, you actually go out on your own Mm. and you do your own cases. And that was just like a whole other world. It was just incredible. But having said that, it was really stressful. You know, you're dealing with people's lives and really looking back, it's like, 
I, I was so inexperienced and even just in the non-legal, the life skills, the people skills that you develop as you just get older and, you know, more experienced. So I do cringe at some of the probably things I said and did. And then finally getting tenancy and being accepted into chambers as a, as a proper barrister when you get your name on the door, quite mm. literally. They print a little wooden plaque and they slide it into the column of all the other barristers' names and that was really cool. Yeah, so that was from the legal side of my career. That was a really cool experience and time of my life. And it does have a sort of, having lived myself in London for a long time, that whole area of London yeah. has such an aura to it, doesn't it? And even to be part of that would be amazing. Oh, it does. Yeah, it's absolutely steeped in history. Yeah, the mm. fact that there's these four ends of court and to be um, a barrister, you have to go and literally sit down and eat 12 dinners before you can become a barrister. <laughs> Pretty much once a month, we'd go to, my inn was in a temple, and I'd go and I'd sit in the big hall, like the Harry Potter hall. Actually, Harry Potter was filmed in Middle Temple, but they look really wow. similar. Yeah. And, you know, you sit down and you eat dinners. And the history behind it is that historically there would be like a lecture given over dinner and it would be a form of education. And hmm. So that's, sometimes we'd get some interesting speakers but it, I think the educational side of it was less than the socializing mm. and feeling part of a bigger institution of, mm-hmm. yeah and just like walking up the um, steps to my chambers they'd been like so well trodden that there was that indent in the middle of the stone steps that was really cool yes yeah. and the UK comes with that amazing level of history and I think it's one of the things that growing up in New Zealand draws people over to do their big OE at a sort of often point in their kind of mid-twenties. And you, I'm right in thinking you did the reverse. So you came from the UK to uh, to New Zealand (laughs) instead. So tell me a bit more about how you ended up in New Zealand. After I did my bar exams and before I did pupillage, um, I had a year to spare and I thought, what shall I do? I'll do um, a master's degree. And I enrolled at King's College in London and that's where I met Roman. <laughs> that was a really cool year. We we were doing a couple of the same subjects together. So we had lectures together and we formed this really, you know, strong friendship. And then our masters finished and I started pupillage and we had uh, a long distance relationship, which is hard, particularly considering the time difference, having to speak early in the morning or late at night. Yes. And We came out and had a two-week holiday. I came out to visit him and we had a two-week holiday in Wellington and it was just like the most glorious two weeks. Mm. Wellington really really turned it on for us. (laughs) And I really did see a different side of living. Like I think English people, and this is a real generalisation, but this is coming from hopefully a place of truth, Mm. slightly enjoy. I think it's entrenched in our um, psyche to get through hard times Mm. rather than trying to just get out of the hard time or find another route. It's like trudging through the hard times. Mm. And there's like a, almost like a sense of satisfaction and validity from doing that. Rather than in, than in New Zealand, we might just say, do you know what? That's really not worth it. I'm just going to take a different course. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying either one is better than the other because I think they definitely um, have their upsides and, and 
you know, possibly negatives. But I saw in New Zealand that they have a, a much more kind of easygoing attitude to things. It's that kind of Kiwi can-do, she'll be right, we'll just, we'll figure it out, but we're not mm. going to like slog, slog away through pain and hardship just for the sake of it, mm. um, which is how I feel English people do sometimes. Yeah, and I think it is maybe that just slightly greater degree of balance between work and life, partly helped by less commute. And yes. But I think there yes. is that bit more perspective and, and balance. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I just think we're so lucky in New Zealand that we have got those opportunities for balance that are relatively inexpensive, if not completely yeah. free. Like, going for beautiful bushwalks, going for ocean swims, um, mountain biking, all these things that we can do, fishing, um, that are much more inaccessible in the UK. Mm. So yeah, maybe it's just that accessibility to the outdoors that keeps us honest and um, grounded. Mm, I think I I think I read in an article about you recently that in, that ocean swims is a regular part of your, your, your life, is that right? Yeah, it is. It re- and, and only really since um, moving to New Zealand, I've always been mm. a swimmer, but ocean swimming definitely is a new thing. I was that kid like on the North Norfolk coast on the beaches, dip my toe in and I'd run away shouting, it's freezing, it's freezing. Oh, I've never been like a cold water lover. In fact, I always gravitate to warm weather, sunshine, heat. But since swimming with a group of people in Wellington really awesome group of people it's just a really informal kind of whatsapp group but feeling that social side to it as well so we'll you know meet up in the morning go for a swim which is awesome and you get to look up and see the outdoors you know you're not seeing the sides of a swimming pool and you're actually seeing the mountains and the sunrise and the sun shining off the buildings in the city and the hills and I mean it's just incredible Um, and really quite spiritual and then afterwards going for coffee and talking about it with all the endorphins and you know just such a great start to the day I think and again we're really lucky that we can do that in well in Wellington at least but probably most other parts of New Zealand yeah it is absolutely that kind of closeness to the coast you almost sold me on an early morning swim I'm not sure that I'm quite up for it yet but (laughs) maybe in the future who knows are you welcome anytime (laughs) thank you And so, so tell me then, it's not necessarily a usual transition, I would have to say, from perhaps a lawyer to being an entrepreneur. So how did that come about and how has it been? So how did it come about? I was pregnant with our first child, Otto, mm. and we, Roman and I were both working as lawyers. And I guess we were just literally sitting down one night working out how on earth is this going to work when we both work office hours, nine to five at the, you know, minimum. And what are we going to do with our child? And when are we going to see it? We didn't know if it was a boy or a girl at the time, so it was it. And then also at the same time, we were really getting into kind of tangible things, making things, rekindling that passion that both of us had as younger people and the artistic side of us which with our legal careers got I don't want to say suppressed because it makes Mm. the law sound like this you know terrible thing but just maybe just got put to one side because we Mm. had other stuff going on and so you know we were making cheese and Roman um, sewed an apron and then he sewed he actually went on to sew the first peanut butter flag and we started experimenting with peanut butter Mm -hmm. selling it at 
the uh, Hatai Farmers Market. And then one of the buyers from uh, a supermarket bought a jar and placed an order. And we were like, oh, my God, I think we might be in business here. Yeah. And the idea was that Roman might be able to be a stay-at-home dad and um, bring up our child and um, make peanut butter at the weekends. And we'd have yes. this lovely kind of hobby, crafty lifestyle. But, yes. of course, it didn't turn out like that because we got this big order and then we started calling around and we, we tried to get a few more orders and then they came in. And um, before we knew it, we like we actually had a kind of proper business mm. in the sense that we had demand and we could supply it and it yes. was taking up a good proportion of our week. Um, so I went back to work just as a part-time lawyer and Roman actually pretty soon afterwards um, quit his job altogether mm. and went into the business full-time. And it's, for me, it's particularly interesting, I think, for lawyers who are attuned to look out for risk, to then to, to <laughs> jump head first or feet first into uh, yeah. taking on a, a new venture like that, which is, of course, inherently risky. How did you guys weigh up those risks? and Or, or did you just literally jump in head first? Well, I'd say, actually, neither of us are risk experts by Mm -hmm. any stretch. What we can do is look at a problem, pull it apart, dissect it, and Mm -hmm. try to find the answer, which in a legal context is relatively straightforward in the sense that you can usually identify the legal issues, the non-legal issues, and where's the authority for those legal issues, and what Act of Parliament, what regulations, what case law supports those. Whereas with uh, business, it's Mm -hmm. completely different. Um, Mm. you can pick apart a problem, but you might not be able to find the answer. Having said that, you can usually make a pretty good guess at the best way forward. And that's probably stood us in really good stead. When we first started, we just used to say to each other, let's just do one thing a day, one Mm. thing, whether it's figuring out what label what the label font should be what the color should be what kind of lid we need what kind of Mm. jar we need how far to roast the peanuts all that kind of stuff just take one thing at a time uh tick it off the list and then Mm. move on to something else and so that really helped us actually and not being overwhelmed with uh the bigger huge picture that just felt um, insurmountable or too enormous to be able to handle and I also even like the way when you talked about it about oh we just started making some peanut butter and tried to see if there was a market (laughs) almost it wasn't that you invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in a brand and a factory and and then discovered there wasn't any market it feels a bit more iterative in terms of the the journey that absolutely yeah and what do you love about your current work I I really love being people use the word self-employed a lot but it's more than just the fact, you know, that we're our own bosses, if you like. Mm. It's the freedom to do really crazy things if we want to, that agility mm. to pivot onto something different, to be a bit of a disruptor maybe, particularly in big organisations, there's quite a often bureaucratic system and you have to kind of state your case and prove it and show evidence Mm. some of the things we've done have deliberately not been done before like when we Mm. um, developed our we've got these um, cardboard canisters that we put our jars in for Amazon and also sometimes for New Zealand and they're like a whiskey 
canister, if you like, that you might see Mm -hmm. in duty free. And when we were developing that, we were like, oh, actually, we really like that. We've never seen it done with peanut butter before, but why not? We can give it a try because it's all on us. And that's maybe been the other thing about just working our way up slowly and organically is we haven't had to take on um, external shareholders. And so that accountability has really fallen with us. So it's like, well, if it doesn't work, that's all on us. Um, And we pick up the pieces. So, uh, you know, it works both ways. It means that you feel like you can sometimes take those risks, but also when it does, if it doesn't work, well, then it is on us and we pay the price. Uh, mm, mm, but also there's there's I guess not that I, I guess sense if you've you haven't let anyone else down yeah. you've done an experiment and if it doesn't okay move yeah. on it's without yeah. having to do the explaining or the justifying that that might otherwise come with that yeah makes sense yeah and what would you say what have been some of your toughest challenges or, or moments over the last few years oh become quite good at I'm not trying to skirt around the question but it's like having a problem, dealing with it, moving on and forgetting about it, it, taking the Mm. learnings from it, but then implementing them, acknowledging them and moving on. So I I wouldn't Mm. say there's been any one particular event that stands out as being like an absolute crisis that was insurmountable. But a few of the things that spring to mind are, for example, the earthquake, the November earthquake a good few years ago. Now I'm trying to think exactly what year it was we were in a different premises and we went on to stuff and the building that was on the front page of stuff was the building that we were in. Mm. And we were just like, Oh my God, what does the, what's our factory going to look like? Are we ruined? Yes. Our insurance cover didn't kick in for two weeks after the event. So we were like, Oh my God, this could be the end of us. And then yes. actually, fortunately we were only out for, I think maybe three or four days. And luckily we were storing our made product and actually quite a lot of our raw materials out um, at a different storage facility, which we just, was just a third party storage facility. So we were, we were so lucky and it was completely fortuitous, really. We'd never thought it through um, that we had stock in a different location. And so we were still able to dispatch orders and pretty much Mm. run that side of the business as usual it's just that we couldn't make anything for a while until the building had usual engineers reports and was um, good to go and it turns out actually that building was fine it was still able to be used uh, relatively quickly afterwards so we were super lucky there um, Sounds like it. Yeah, very yeah. much. And tell me, I know, Andrew, you've, I'm like thinking you've got two kids now. So two, two young kids. Yeah, we do. On the top of running a, a growing business. Mm. And I've heard you talk about, about the ocean swimming. How else do you keep balance between work and, and your broader life? So obviously spending time with our kids is really important. One thing that's just made our lives so much more stress-free is having our uh, family friend Charlotte um, help us with the kids in the morning. So Charlotte mm-hmm. enables us to uh, do our own thing in the morning. She takes them to school and she's absolutely fantastic. And then so we can both get on with our days and the kids are happy yes. and well looked after. And then it means that I can pick them up uh, generally after school and hang mm. out with them then. And then that's our quality time. You know, I've learned the hard way not to try and do errands with the kids. 
So mm-hmm. I don't I take them into the supermarket or the hardware store or really anything other than going to swimming lessons, going to the park, um, doing fun stuff with them. And that's that gives me um, a lot of satisfaction, happiness. And mm. Roman and I are both, I guess, good at taking at carving out our own time as well. In the evening, we'll have a couple of nights a week where one of us will go out and the other one will stay at home with the kids just to catch up with friends, go to the movies, do a yoga class, something like that. Mm, nice, Amish. It, I, I, it can be a challenge to try and find Absolutely. that time, but it's nice to hear that you managed to carve it out and uh, gives you a bit of joy during the week. Yeah, and that's by no means to say we've like perfected it. It's a constant moving feast of what works and what doesn't, what times work and when people are going to be uh-huh. home and what time classes are running and all that kind of stuff, the logistics yeah. of it. I think that balance is one of those things, isn't it? Yeah. It's never quite right. Or if it is, it's only for a day and then something else comes in and things change again. So that's quite yeah. normal, I'd say. And to as well that we're humans and we're different and we're, our energy levels are different as well with the mm. kids and their needs and whether they've got homework or whether we're feeling tired and burnt out and all the rest of it. So just trying to be a bit more mindful of that. Even when we think we've got a week mapped out, it might just change because we're all feeling different to how we thought we would. Yeah, that's true. Mm. And and as you look back at your kind of career to date, what are one or two of your proudest career moments? Fix and Fog as a whole, we're both immensely proud of. And, the, you know, it's the little things that really make me smile and light up inside. Like I remember the first time I saw a jar of Fix and Fog in somebody's recycling just a random person on recycling day and I just thought oh my god that's so cool like they've not only bought it they've eaten it they've enjoyed it and now Mm. it's being recycled um and we don't even know them it's those little things that that I just absolutely love seeing people do little um videos or stories on social media and when they're not you know necessarily like influencers or, or businesses they're just people that are enjoying our peanut butter people using it for sports nutrition. And then I I was walking um, down the road the other day and I saw a girl wearing one of our branded sweatshirts. We've got this little um, image of, uh, we call it toast friends. So it's like a piece of toast in a jar of peanut butter holding hands. (laughs) And I wanted to like stop her and say, I love your top. You know, it's really cool. But I didn't, that would have been weird. Um, But it's those kind of things actually, rather than, you know, the amount of supermarkets that we're in or how many jars we're selling a week or that kind of stuff, which is all really important, but that doesn't make me um, joyful in the same mm. way. It's interesting, and it comes back almost to that you know, we talked right at the start of today about the emotional side. It's actually people who've had some kind of an emotional connection, a personal connection yeah. with your brand, that that seems to be the, that's the thing that feels makes you the most proud. Yeah, it's that. It's the consumer. It's seeing the consumer yeah. happy, as opposed to the um, distributor or the merchant or the middle person, if you like. Yeah. And where do you see where do you see your career heading in the future? That's such a hard question mm. because things are changing all the time. The kids are growing up. We're getting more freedom as parents, and they're more independent. We're um always finding new things that we enjoy like doing in the business very very small kind of little tweaks I'm not saying anything significant but we're doing 
lots of new product development at the moment, like we always are, and just trying the new flavors. And I don't know that I really have this like ultimate goal to be something or somewhere. I was listening to a Tim Minchin speech. Mm. I don't, it's, it's relatively well known, actually. He talks about the nine lessons of life. And I'm not going to say it half as articulate as him, but he basically says, my interpretation of it was, you don't need this massive goal to mm. strive towards. Just have small incremental things that you work towards that bring mm. you joy and happiness. And that's enough. You know, I think a lot of the time we're asked, what's your purpose in life? What's your ultimate goal? Mm. And that to me is so future looking that it takes you out of the present. Mm. And without being too spiritual and philosophical about it, I really am trying more to live in the present moment and just enjoy what it has to offer and what I can give to it, as opposed to thinking that, now's not good enough and I need to get somewhere. And that probably enables you to probably feel a bit more satisfied and fulfilled, actually. Absolutely. Driving and just something ephemeral in the distance. Yes. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Now, we're coming to the end now, Andrea, but I wanted to ask, have you got any career advice for girls or for women about their careers? I think forget about social views on the status of a particular job. I think part of the reason I liked the idea of being a barrister um, was because it sounds really good Mm. and you can introduce yourself and say, you know, I'm a barrister and it sounds Mm. high flying and important. But actually the happiness side of it comes from doing something that you're good at. So I think whatever you have a passion for and just get enjoyment from doing, be it sewing, cooking, playing around with pipes like my son. I see he likes, we've um, had a bit of building work done at our house and he loves hanging out with the plumber mm. and just connecting all the pipes together. And I see maybe, oh, maybe one day he'll want to be a plumber as well. And I just get so much joy from that. Mm. So I think, yeah, try and put aside those societal views of the status of a job and just Mm. do something and keep doing it and trying it, um, something that makes you happy. Lovely. Wonderful advice. Andrea, thank you so so much for your time today. I I massively appreciate it and for taking the time to share your journey. Um, You're so welcome. Yes, and and thanks again for the yummy peanut butter. (laughs) I loved it and I loved I had the cardboard cylinder around it. It was very nice and made the whole eating experience wonderful. Yeah, oh, that's great to hear. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much. No worries, Anna. Lovely chatting to you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.